And welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma, and this episode is called Smeghead Space Science <laughs> because we're talking about the cult 80s sci fi show Red Dwarf and having a look at all things stars, future of space travel, and we even ask an actual astronomer about the existence of aliens. Yeah, excellent. Mm. <laughs> And of course, uh, Smeghead, that is an absolute classic Red Dwarf phrase, isn't it? Um, And we're obviously going to try and fit as many of these as we can into the show. So do listen out for them. We'll give you a list at the end. So you're a a massive fan of the show. I I am. I've watched Mm. two episodes yesterday in Mm -hmm. in preparation. (laughs) Um, So I've I've got some questions. So the premise of the show Mm. is they're basically like a few really strange life forms still living on a spaceship. Yeah. Basically. Well, it's well. what's happened is um, if you imagine you're out on a mining vessel, uh, just, a you know, there's a space mining corporation mm. and they're out there in space on a mining vessel. There's a, over a thousand people on the ship and then there's an accident and the accident kills everybody except for one human mm. who happens to be in stasis at the time and a cat that has evolved from the domestic cat to, to be like a, a human shaped cat. And then they uh, they end up with a hologram because he's um, you know he's brought to life in order to support the human that's mm-hmm. living there, and they end up meeting a robot later on as well or an android, um, and they're basically the four crew along with the the AI computer system that runs the ship. I mean, wonderfully bizarre. What's not to like? <laughs> no, well, I, and I love I love the whole like really dodgy low budget sets and the way mm. everything's put together. I think it's I think it's really funny. It's very eighties. It's very eighties. <laughs> Yes, but actually, so so you have for the the entire time I've known you, you've said mm. you love Red Dwarf. So I've yes. always said at some point I need to sit down and watch it. And mm. as I said, I've only watched a couple of episodes, but I realised something: the main mm. character, or I want to call him the main character, Lister, Lister, whose name yeah. I promptly forgot, <laughs> Craig, the guy that plays him, I recognise mm. from my own kind of childhood Saturday night, Sunday night TV viewings because he was the presenter on Robot Wars which yes. was my favourite show back <laughs> in the day. Used to watch that with my dad, Robot Wars. Yeah. Promptly followed by Scrappy Challenge. Yes. Which Robert Llewellyn is on, and he plays yeah. Crichton, who turns up in a couple of series, doesn't he? Yeah. So yeah. I was like, oh, my God. I actually <laughs> I found it quite people. nostalgic watching it. I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I'm going to watch <laughs> a couple more episodes. I might end up yeah. into it like you. I, yeah. thought it was, I thought it was actually very funny. Yeah, and and of course, most people um, will know Danny John Jules um, from Strictly, and uh, Death in Paradise as well, and and he plays the cat in in the Red Dwarf series. So yeah, see, it's really misleading because him. whenever we've spoken about it before, you say, oh mm. yeah, there is a cat who is a character, but of course, mm. he's played by a human. He's evolved to look like a human, so he's yes. basically <laughs> just a really weird human who like yeah acts mm. a bit like a cat. So when we call him a cat. Yeah. It's it's really it's such a weird it's a weird jarring <laughs> distinction to call him it a cat is. but have him yeah. almost entirely human yeah yeah it's great I mean I I just love the I love the premise I love it's it's basically a sitcom um, and it really struggled to get produced so apparently the the script was knocking around the BBC for for three years or so before they oh, could right. get it filmed and and the four actors who are playing the main characters aren't standard sitcom actors so you know they they were a, a dancer an impressionist a stand-up comic 
a poet you know those these were people who were used to performing but not necessarily as actors you oh. know um so it's quite interesting hmm it became massive, essentially, doesn't it? it wasn't, there was, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it started in 1988. Yeah. But even as recently as last year, there was a revival of it, wasn't there? there was, wasn't there a film last year? There was a film, it? yeah. So what happened was uh, the BBC produced loads up into the 90s and then... Dave, the TV channel Dave, um, got hold of them. And it repeats a lot of old BBC shows like Top Gear and QI and all that kind of stuff. And you can see loads of episodes. And they they did uh, Red Dwarf. And it was so popular, they decided, oh, let's do a few new episodes and see what the reaction's like. And incredibly popular, these new episodes. So they're still, yeah, as of 2020, still new new film and episodes and things like that coming out in the last few years. So, yeah, very popular. But definitely a cult, what you call a cult classic. Mm. Mm. So shall we talk about some of the characters from the show then and some of the science? Let's have a chat about the science. Yes, now that I've watched it and I actually know who the characters are, I'm ready. (laughs) Hurrah. So we're going to start, I think, with my favourite character that is Rimmer. And Rimmer was actually... Go on. I'm not surprised that this is your favourite character. (laughs) So for context, Rimmer is a human, but he's a hologram of a human. His character died and now he's Mm. kind of been brought back as a hologram. Um, but he's very deadpan and he's very serious and yep. he's very funny in his deadpan seriousness, which is exactly what you liked about Captain Holt when we did yes. the Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. So I'm not surprised at all <laughs> that you lean towards Rimmer. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. And apparently um, the name has come from a, the, the name of a prefect uh, from the school that the two writers went to. Um, so so mean. <laughs> so so mean. It's on real life. But what's... It's, it's one thing to have it inspired by someone you knew in real life mm. and paint them badly, but to physically give him the same name. Just to name him. Because he does act like, you know, a very a prefect. He does he? actually, it's yeah. just like just like, you know, insisting on you follow all the rules. Very and stiff, things, as you yeah, spoke very, to. very yeah. much like adhere to the rules, do as I say, follow the hierarchy, the authority. Yeah, definitely yeah. a prefect. You can see that. Definitely. <laughs> now, what's quite interesting was um, obviously Chris Barry plays him in the in the TV show. Um, but the people who auditioned for it perhaps would have been people that you would think would more likely get the part. So people like David Baddiel, who was very big uh, back in there. Hugh Laurie, who's been, you know, the actor in House. I could have seen Hugh Laurie being a good one, actually. Mm, he would have been really good, wouldn't he? Some, but sometimes um, he comes across a little bit too posh. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, I don't know if it would have worked. For, for him to posh, have been a lowly but... maintenance character. Mm, this is true. But uh, I think he'd have been really good. Mm. He'd have been really good at it. But but Chris Barry at the time was a professional voice actor and an impressionist. You know, he'd done a bit on Spitting Image and that kind of thing, but nothing nothing huge. So this was big big stepping stone for him. Yeah. So his character, Arnold Judas Rimmer. <laughs> so you can tell they really were digging into the prefect that they were building this character mm. on. Um, so he his character was killed during a radiation leak, the same thing which killed absolutely everybody else on the ship, leaving yeah. Lister on his own and he is yeah revived basically by the ship's computer whose name is holly to be a hologram so Mm. his character just walks around with a h on his head the whole time (laughs) just so that you know that he's definitely not a person confused yeah (laughs) and we do have to say at this point the rimmer is an absolute smeghead yes (laughs) he is i'm afraid and uh crichton would say that he's a smee smee Smee, because he can't say Smeghead because it's it's he it's against his programming to insult people, so he finds it really <laughs> difficult. But he says that he couldn't. Uh, he did say that um, that Rimmer would not be able to outwit a tea bag. 
So <laughs> yeah, back to Rimmer. So he's got the same drives and feelings as the original live Rimmer, mm. but he's unable to touch anything uh, because he's made from light. Mm, cue um, quite a lot of really dodgy special effects where he like falls through things <laughs> it's like oh no um and and he's made of this soft light so he can't touch anything originally but later on he gets upgraded to to hard light and that can touch things but it's still a hologram very useful a very useful tool to be written into the show to allow him to, <laughs> yes. to touch things yeah touch things yeah so the, the question is obviously you know back then this was speculative um but how you know how close are we to making this kind of thing actually happen how, how close are mm. we to having holograms like this as part of our lives yeah well, so we did a lot of research into this didn't we, we, to we find did out. do some we did do some mm. serious googling on, on holograms mm. yeah so a guy called dennis gabor he first proposed the idea of a hologram or the concept of a hologram in 1947 couldn't really do much about it but then later received the nobel prize in 1971 for actually creating something and developing the holographic method yeah um, now, technically speaking, the definition of a hologram. Now, this is this is quite interesting. Um, so it's it, a hologram is made by recording the light which is scattered from an object or by an object. And then you present it on a 2D surface, almost like a photograph, but making it appear 3D. Mm. So it's using light that's bouncing off an object, turning it into a 2D image that looks 3D. Um, and if you think about it, we've got those on things like credit cards and postcard uh, postcards. We've got that on things Some like credit cards, cards <laughs> credit cards and passports, um, where it looks three D, um, but it's not actually been projected out of the page. Mm, I'm it's imagining like two like trading surface. cards when you're a kid, uh, when you kind of you ripple it, it yeah, slightly and like, it feels like it moves and it's got layers. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like so it forms that three D image. Yeah, but mm. it's tough, isn't it? Because when we think the word hologram. Mm. We all think of, you know, Princess Leia and her appeal yeah. in Star Wars and, and seeing something which mm. actually physically appears 3D in front of you. But yeah. actually what this is called is a volumetric image. So this is an image which takes up a 3D space. So Rimmer really should have a V on his head, not a H, yes. because he's <laughs> a volumetric image. <laughs> yeah, so, so he's a volumetric image, but not only that, but he's got Rimmer's consciousness there. So he's able to respond to situations in a way that Rimmer would have done had he been alive and he's able to remember things and all that kind of stuff. So it's really complicated technology if you think about it. So there's kind of an AI element to it as well. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. The, the big problem with creating this type of image is how do you stop light travelling in midair in order to form the kind of external image? So yeah. if we're thinking of lasers, you know, if you get like a laser pointer, um, mm. if you fire the laser on, you can't stop it at any point. It just keeps going until it hits whatever it is that it hits. Mm. So how would you stop a beam of light in such a way as to create this external structure? How do you stop it at the right point to, you know, to make a 3D image? Yeah, and that's the issue because Rimmer has this thing inside him called a light bee. And that's what projects the light out to form the outside of of his person, you know, of, of the image. So you have to think about how am I going to stop it at the particular points on the face to form the structure of the face? So it's mm -hmm. actually really complicated. So all of the light beams that are being projected out from the light bee, they'd all need to stop at kind of the outline of, of Alphabet Head's body, basically, wouldn't they? <laughs> they would, yeah, all gold Alphabet Head, head love that. <laughs> That's cat, one of Cat's favourite uh, uh -huh. favorite names for Rimmer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in one recent piece of research that we actually read, um, they've overcome this issue 
by using a laser beam to trap a very small piece of cellulose and they move it around to form the shape. So if you imagine you've got a sparkler, you know, when you were a kid, you had the sparklers and you moved it around and you could do like letters mm. and things like that and make shapes in the air. So it's doing it in a very similar way. So moving this cellulose spot around to create an image and they made an image of a butterfly. Oh, wow. Mm. And, and there's also some research which is having a look into using lasers to basically excite air molecules to the point where they will emit light. Mm. But of course, this is actually quite a difficult, expensive and quite a hot process. Because <laughs> yes. if you're going to try and excite air molecules to the point that they are releasing light, light. Yeah. it's going to be a lot of energy gonna and the molecule is going to get very warm. hot. Yeah, and, about, and, and you can see why it'd be expensive. Yes. Not, not really worth it. Yeah. Mm. But they do think that soon we're going to actually have holograms coming out of our phones because scientists have created the world's thinnest hologram. Um, and it's called a nano hologram because, of course, it is. It's tiny. They like to call it nano, don't they? Nanobots, nano hologram. Yes. Um, so this can be seen without 3D goggles, which is the key key thing. Um, and it apparently is a thousand times thinner than a human hair. So the technology is a thousand times. And they're hoping that they'll be able to project an image from look, makes it look as though it's coming out from your phone, from your smartphone, which is amazing. Yeah. Hmm. I can't wait to see what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. And we also had a quick look, didn't we, into the the, the patent office to see if Mm. there was anything going on and found something quite exciting. So in 2020, somebody has uh, tried to get a license for a patient basically for a conversational holographic assistant. Mm. So it would display like a computer-generated human-like image, but Mm. you could have a conversation with it in real time and it would remember things like your past interactions so it could be potentially really useful for things like in a sales environment. Yeah, which is which is when you start to think about it, that sounds very Rimmer-like, doesn't it? Oh, I so, don't like but, the idea of it at all. No. And the thing is, is I can't imagine it being as good. So I think we'd just be disappointed by it. I don't think it's because we've got these images from sci-fi, haven't we, about what, what holograms should mm. be or these volumetric images should be Um, because of course at the moment we've got things like reality um, so virtual reality augmented reality Mm. Um, but for these we have to wear headsets and we have to wear gloves and things like that in order to be able to interact and what we want is something that doesn't require all this external technology so anything that enables us to interact with something artificial like that that's what we're interested in and if you were trying to get a moving 3d image Mm. you would it would it would require a lot of computer power to try and generate yeah. this. Um, some scientists even speculate that this kind of level of computer power won't even be available to us until at least kind of 2046. Uh, but of course, the series is based in the 23rd century. At least it is from, you know, from series three onwards. Um, and who knows what technology is going to be available by the 23rd century. So, you know. Here's waiting. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so back to the ship. So the mining vessel that they live on is actually called Red Dwarf, hence mm-hmm. the name of the show. So the obvious place for us to start with, wasn't it, when we we're looking at the science of the show, was what yeah. actually is a Red Dwarf? Yeah, so we spoke to Jake Foster, one of the astronomers at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, to try and find out. Well, um, in terms of astronomy... A red dwarf is the smallest type of main sequence star that you can get. So uh, a star in its main sequence is basically just the main stage of its life that it spends the majority of its life in. So a red dwarf is the smallest version of that that you can get. 
they're usually between 7 to 50% the mass of the sun. So they are very small, though still much smaller or much larger rather than a gas giant planet like Jupiter. And they're also the most abundant type of star, we believe, in the entire universe. Wow. And oh, wow. they possibly make up 70% of all the stars in the universe. Hmm. So the natural question you might have is, how come we never see red dwarfs in the sky if mm. they make up most of them? And in fact, red dwarfs are believed to make up 20 of the 30 most close stars to us, including the closest star, Proxima Centauri, which is about four light years away. And mm. the reason we can't see them is just because they are too dim. They're not bright enough to be seen with the naked eye. And because of their small size and as well, well, contributing to how dim they are, one of the most prominent characteristics about them is that they burn their hydrogen extremely slowly. So they're very, well, it depends if you see it as being efficient or inefficient to, to preserve your, your hydrogen mm -hmm. fuel or not as a star. But what it means is that they have the longest lifespan of any type of star, and they can live anywhere between one and around a 10 trillion years. Gosh, wow. As opposed to a star like the sun, which only lives for around nine and a half to 10 billion years. Only. Oh, wow. So it's quite, that's, that is a significant difference though, isn't it? Yes. So the, well, the result of that is that uh, red dwarfs will outlive all other stars in the universe and they will end up being the last stars in the universe. So uh, in trillions of years time in the future, any surviving civilization, whether that be human or otherwise, will need to huddle around the last remaining red dwarves in the universe uh, to survive and to keep warm because all of the other stars will have died trillions of years prior. So red dwarves will be the last lifeline for any life in the future. They will be the last campfires of the universe. What a fantastic phrase. So it's so it's a great name for for the ship then in Red Dwarf because that's basically where effectively the last humans are because he's been asleep for so long that he is basically the last human. Well, exactly, yes. That makes sense. In yeah. a way, yes, in the same way that a Red Dwarf star will be a lifeline for future civilizations, the ship itself really is his lifeline when he finds himself to be the last human three million years or so into the future or however long he's uh, in the stasis chamber for. So talking about the ship then. Mm. Now what's really brilliant about the ship is the AI. So of course we got Holly to start off with and this is the ship's computer and the ship's computer's got an IQ of 6,000. Mm. The same IQ as 6,000 PE teachers. <laughs> I think I'm going to get into trouble with that one, given that I am a teacher. <laughs> if we don't underline right now that that was a quote directly from, Please, like, yes, from yes. one of the first episodes, people, yeah, all of your teaching colleagues <laughs> might be a little bit miffed. <laughs> Karen doesn't really believe that PE teachers are thick, no, just, uh, no. just to underscore no, that. That was a quote from the show, everyone. <laughs> so Holly runs all of the ship's systems and Holly's actually what protects Lister from the disaster, which kills all of his shipmates. He keeps him in stasis until mm. the radiation levels that have killed everyone else are back down enough for him, a human being, to survive and thrive. Um, hence, he wakes up almost completely alone, 3 billion yeah. years, 30 billion years, whatever it is, after everybody else dies. 
Yeah. But he's also the character. If you can call AI a character, we're going to call him a character, aren't we? Yeah, I think so, yeah. He's also the character that makes the decision to bring Rimmer back as a hologram, as some company for Lister. Yeah. Um, and Holly can actually be downloaded into the Holly Watch, which can be worn by Lister. And if you think about it, you know, we're talking about 1988 here. And uh, I can just sit here with my with my watch and say, hey, Siri, and then have a chat with Siri. There's Siri just popped up on my watch there. It's probably not the best idea in the middle of recording, <laughs> is it? <laughs> I but was you know, quite surprised is... when, you, when you physically did brandish the Apple Watch. So Siri's Shut not up, sure they understand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, Siri. You and me mm. both. More <laughs> excitingly than a talking watch, uh, there is actually mm. the talkie toaster. I was very excited. I, obviously, having only seen two or three episodes, I was thrilled that a, an actual toaster ended up basically being <laughs> the Alexa or the Siri of the whole ship. It was great. Yeah. And this inanimate object led to one of my favourite <laughs> quotes. Given that God is infinite and the universe is also infinite, would you like a toasted tea cake? <laughs> I loved it. What I love yes, about please. the talkie toaster is the fact that it, the fact that it just absolutely wants you to eat toasted breaded products and it just pushes and pushes and pushes them. I mean, how do doodly do? <laughs> I just love it. Just love the toasty. Um, so if you imagine Alexa being able to provide toasted bread products alongside its usual commands. I mean, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Absolutely I'd put amazing. on several stone. I would, definitely. <laughs> and one thing I've noticed that in kind of all sci-fi films and TV shows mm. where they depict kind of the future in space travel mm. is that space travel itself, it looks really flashy, doesn't it? You get lots of fast yeah. ships and, and jargon like warp speed and they're all kind of flashing and banging their way through space. And I can't mm. help but wonder... Is that what it would actually be like? Yeah. So so while we're on the topic of the ship itself and talking about Red Dwarf and how it gets through space, we, we get, we're going to get Jake to answer some of those logistical questions about the ship and how it navigates. Mm, that's Rupin an expert. How would you navigate in space? So navigation in space is, as you would expect it to be, a very complex thing. And there's, there are multiple different methods, all used in unison, to get a spacecraft safely to its destination. Um, and this is especially true for uncrewed missions, things like NASA's Perseverance mission, which landed safely on Mars on the 18th of February. So navigating an uncrewed interplanetary probe uh, relies on a few things. The first and probably most basic in principle is communication through radio signals. Mm. So you have a radio telescope on Earth, which will send a radio signal out to a spacecraft where it is received and then transmitted back to Earth. And the change in frequency of the signal, as well as the time it took to get there, can be used to calculate where the spacecraft is and how fast it's going. And these measurements can be incredibly accurate. So you can have a spacecraft that's a million kilometers away and you can know its position to within you know three square meters or so so that's the first and perhaps most basic method but well in fact there's an even more basic method which helps which is spacecraft can also make use of the stars for navigation so in the same way that sailors used to navigate across the oceans using the stars as a guide spacecraft can also use a celestial coordinate system to help orientate themselves to figure out what position they are facing. And 
When a spacecraft on an interplanetary trip gets close enough to its destination, cameras can be used to get a better look at any particular landing site, uh, which we saw with the Perseverance mm. uh, landing footage. That incredible footage. Oh my gosh, that uh, was, was not amazing, only, wasn't it? Mm. it? It was incredible to see. And it's not only just for show, though it is amazing just to watch. That is used to help pinpoint and navigate itself to the correct landing site. Because, well, certainly for Perseverance landing in Jezero Crater, there was a lot of different obstacles in the way. So just using a camera to see where you're going can be incredibly incredibly helpful. And other than that, one of the most crucial requirements for any sort of um, trip with a spaceship through interplanetary space is to have a very accurate model of the solar system. So just knowing where all the planets and all the moons are going to be, and especially knowing the gravitational effects that they might have on the spaceship mm. is vital. And if yeah, you definitely. and if you cover all of those bases, you have a pretty good chance of finding your way through space. <laughs> so if you just cover those few things, hopefully you'll be fine. Easy peasy, get some good maps, crack on. <laughs> so Red Dwarf is is out there for millions of years, basically, sustaining life on board, which means it's going to have to have some kind of a sustainable fuel source, isn't it? So at the moment, when we send rockets out into space, you know, we're using rocket fuel to get them there and presumably small amounts of rocket fuel to keep them going but that's obviously not that sustainable long term so so how would you know spacecraft move themselves around in a more sustainable way do you think in the future well so that's a great question and that is something that needs to be worked out still there isn't a definitive answer for how to best carry out interstellar space trips though we know one thing that is very helpful is to get a gravity assist. So the Voyager spacecrafts made use of these gravity assists where they would slingshot themselves around a planet or any large body to give themselves that extra speed that they need and change of course to get them to where they need to go. So th that can be incredibly helpful. In terms of, say, if you're moving between solar systems or whatever it may be and running out of fuel, I suppose in the future it'd be helpful to be able to mine mine asteroids for resources and things like that. Though you're certainly right, there is limited fuel and an infinity of space to move in. So at some point, someone's going to need to figure that out. What's really funny for me, though, is because I obviously started watching it back again, uh, given that we were going to record this show. And I've got I've got up to about series four or five now, I think. And, and it's really odd because what's really comes up time and time again on the show is genetically modified organisms. And I mean, this was a big science topic back in the, you know, in the 80s and the 90s. And they actually have these things called GELFs, which are genetically engineered life forms. And they come up quite a bit in the show. And it's it's just really strange seeing how science has moved on to, to other topics of conversation now. Yeah, I mean, in the show, they meet all sorts of kind of man-made genetic modified organisms, don't they, in like synthetic versions of life. Yeah, and, and that really got us thinking about aliens didn't it how so, can red uh, dwarf not get us thinking about <laughs> aliens <laughs> exactly uh so let's go back to the interview and play the clip where you ask the question that everybody wants to know the answer to i've written down on my notebook and underlined it and put an arrow next to it 
Oh, it must be important. Well, clearly I thought so at the time, but perhaps you might disagree. I wrote, are there aliens and what evidence is there of life on other planets? So that's a great question. Um, I'm good. <laughs> and we, we get this question all the time at the observatory in shows. So it's not by any means a silly question. And <laughs> the, the answer depends on what type of life you'd like to know about, really. So I think... Perhaps the most intriguing thing that a lot of people want to know about is what about extraterrestrial intelligent life forms? And statistically speaking, there's no evidence for it, but statistically, if we're talking about probability, there is quite a probable chance that there are intelligent civilizations elsewhere, even in the Milky Way in our own galaxy. And this is according to... Uh, a very famous equation called the Drake equation. Mm. So this was an equation that was devised by the astronomer Frank Drake all the way back in the early 60s. And it was devised more as a conversation starter than as an actual probable estimate of those sorts of numbers. But we can use it to make a very rough estimate of the number of potential intelligent civilizations that might be in the Milky Way. And it's based on factors like the rate of star formation within a galaxy, uh, what fraction of those stars have planets, what fraction of those planets could support life, and eventually, if a civilization forms on those planets, what fraction of those civilizations would develop interstellar communications in the way that we have. And there's no clear consensus on what the number is but the estimate that was made in 1961 or so predicted that there could be anywhere between 1,000 and 100 million planets in the Milky Way that could possibly be sustaining an intelligent alien civilization, which is huge, mm. absolutely huge. And the natural question that comes from that is, where are all the aliens then? <laughs> and so this is what we call the Fermi paradox, because it was the famous physicist Enrico Fermi who famously asked the question, where are all the aliens? And there's a, there's a few possible explanations for that. There is a concept called the Great Filter, which is an idea that somewhere along the evolutionary path of a species, we have all of these different uh, transitions. Things like going from single-celled life to multicellular life is a transition. So we might call that a filter. It's a thing that a species has to pass through to get to the next stage. So there's the stage going from uh, a simple species to one that learns to use tools. That's quite a big step along the pathway to being a civilization. Um, so that's a filter as well. And it goes on like that. And, you know, you might have a civilization and then going on to develop communication through space. That's another filter. And the idea is that one of these filters is the great filter. It's the one that filters out 99.99999% of all species, and that's very improbable to pass. And the question becomes, which one of these transitions is the great filter? It may be the case that that filter is for us, behind us, and we've already passed it. So maybe it's incredibly improbable to go from single-celled life to multicellular mm -hmm. life. And maybe that's only ever happened on Earth and nowhere else in the Milky Way. And if that's the case, the answer to the Fermi paradox of where are all the aliens is, well, we are the first. But then it's also possible that the filter, the great filter, 
is in front of us and that it's in our future. So it may be possible that some unknown threat to our civilization in the future awaits us. And the reason there are no aliens is because they have reached the point that we have, but something else in the future wipes them out. And, you know, this is all conjecture, so it could be anything. Maybe it's nuclear war, maybe it's running out of resources, maybe it's some sort of climate catastrophe or some... Or some kind of virus, maybe. Well, <laughs> well. Karen keeping it topical. Or some yeah. sort of AI-related extinction event. Oh, gosh. So it's, this is all conjecture as well. But it is very interesting to consider, where are the aliens? Are we the first... Or are we heading on a path of impending doom? And the reason there are no other aliens is because <laughs> they've all wiped themselves out. We just don't know. Now, everybody's dead Dave Lister is put in stasis as a punishment for bringing an unquarantined pregnant cat called Frankenstein on board the ship. And over, over the three million years he's in stasis, these cats evolved to become bipedal hominids. Yes, yeah, so this new spa- species is then called Felis sapiens. Mm. And believe it or not, the binomial name for the domestic cat that we mm. have nowadays in real life is Felis catus. Yeah, Big fan <laughs> I just of that. love that. Felis catus. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this has kind of been combined with our binomial Homo sapiens to form Felis sapiens. Neat. Yeah, and sapiens, sapiens itself is a Latin word and it means to be wise so in other words Felis sapiens would mean wise cat ah. but that's a bit of a stretch for the character cat though i would have said you? <laughs> bless him from what i've seen you know he's, he's vain he's narcissistic mm. he's really confident he's, yeah. he's basically a psychopath who would score quite highly on the hair psychopathy checklist wouldn't he he would yes yeah and if you nice don't know what we're talking to about go back and listen to our killing eve episode yes yeah <laughs> Um, and he's got typical cat-like behaviour. So even though he looks like a human, you know, he'll play with shiny things. And he actually scents things by having in his pocket a little spray um, that he'll spray on surfaces. And he'll say, this oh, really? is mine, that's mine, oh, I haven't that's seen mine. That. That's so funny. He's, <laughs> so he's actually really got his good. own scent pocket. Yeah. I love that they've evolved not to squirt out of their, like, <laughs> bum glands. He's got a little like, perfume bottle. He's got a little perfume. That's funny. Exactly. <laughs> and he licks people who give him food. And he teases his food as well in the same way a cat would, but it sings to it at the same time. I'm going to get you little fishy. <laughs> I've actually seen that fishy. one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently Danny John Jules, who plays Cat, actually studied a book called Cat Watching to help mm. him get into the character of the cat, <laughs> which is quite funny. And one of the things that he picked mm. up from this was not to blink when he's in character, apparently. Which is, oh, that's scary, isn't it? And do you know I'm going to watch out for that now? I will as see well, if he, yeah. See if it happens. So given all of this information, then how did we end up with a bipedal cat? Well, I mean, first of all, let's have a little mm. quick definition of bipedal, which basically is walks on two feet, isn't it? So yeah. the cat has evolved yeah. from being on four feet to two. So yeah. Frankenstein, which is the name of the original pregnant cat, which Lister mm. had before he went into stasis for a very long time, was was basically very safely sealed in the hold. Um, yeah. So also managed to dodge this radiation leak which would have which killed all of the rest of the crew. So yeah. she had a litter and then they bred and um, you know got some questions there about the genetic diversity of this population, but eventually <laughs> evolved over a very long time. I hope time. it was a 
big litter. <laughs> yeah, it must have been over three million years to kind of become something that result became a humanoid form, essentially, in the same way that humans evolved from a little single-celled organism at some point. So the thought here is that also, because this transformation was so great, perhaps actually mm. traces of the radiation in this storyline helped this process along caused a few extra mutations yeah you know really really kind of gave it a bit of a nudge to become the the version of cat that we now see it looks a bit like human and talking of radiation mm. we're going to get a lot more into radiation aren't we in uh, next week's episode on chernobyl yes absolutely yeah so that should be really interesting um, so nearly all the cats uh, left because obviously they'd have to be quite a population of cats at the time this, they was, had a big... this is what i was thinking Mm. to have evolved this there must have been loads of them but yet yeah. we only find one we just find the yeah. one cat so what happened yeah so so they there was a big old um kind of argument between two different factions that believed two different things and they ended up leaving the vessel on these arcs because they were going looking for basically for for cat heaven effectively um so they were they were they were all going out on these arcs to try and find things and he was left behind oh so I guess we need to think about how cat evolved from being a cat into being Felis sapiens. Don't yes, we? And let's how get this process actually happened. Evolutionary so, biology, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So let's let's take it maybe A level biology standard. Shall we? Shall we stick with that? Being yeah. A sure. Science teacher and all that. Um, so basically, Listen, the idea if it, is if the podcast doesn't meet the curriculum. I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> right, you are, boss. <laughs> Um, so basically, there's any population's got variation. So even if the organisms are thought to be genetically identical to each other, there'll still be mutations that make, you know, slight difference and variation mm. within a population. And then due to natural selection and genetic drift, um, these things will act on that variation. So there'll be selective pressures from the environment, for example. Um, and these might cause changes to happen as well, because some members of the species will have a selective advantage. So what that means is, let's say something in the environment changes, like it becomes drier. Some of the species or some of the organisms within that species will be better adapted to cope with dry conditions. Those will be more likely to survive, more likely to reproduce and more likely to pass on their genes to the next generation. So over time, the species will change over time and eventually you might end up with a completely new species. Um, and these characteristics will increase um, in prevalence within a population. So they'll become more common um, and some others will become more rare in a population. And eventually the population will, will change as a result of this. Yeah. So it's estimated that around 3.5 to 3.8 billion years ago, there was one common ancestor on Earth. So this is one most likely single celled organism from which basically everything, every item of life that we now know on Earth has evolved from this one common ancestor. Yeah, so that took kind of 3.5, 3.8 billion years. Mm. So how about human evolution then? Well, if we think about the evolution of bipedalism in humans and how long that took, um, it's thought to be somewhere between 4 and 8 million years, depending on which species you take into account. And this, this involved changes to the way the bones are arranged, the sizes of certain bones. And we're thinking about the mm. foot and the hip and the legs, obviously. They would have all changed over time. And it's thought that, that one of the reasons this happened is, is walking costs about 75% less energy than if walking on two or four feet in something like chimpanzees. So us walking versus chimpanzees walking is 75% more efficient. 
So, so you know, efficiency could be a really important reason why that, that actually developed in us. And there are lots of different hypotheses as well around why exactly it happened, um, some of which include, mm. for example, the savanna-based theory. So this is where hominins came down from the trees and then adapted to then live on the ground in the savanna. And you've also got the kind of, uh, kind mm-hmm. of um, if you're there, there's a mixture of scattered trees and it would be potentially more efficient to walk rather than crawl when you're getting around. And there's also the wading model. So if you have a look at great apes today, mm. they will switch from walking on four feet to walking on two feet when they wade through water. So this is potentially something else, which was another selective pressure to pushing us to becoming bipedal. Yeah, so if we lived around a lot of water at the time um, and we were wading through water at the time, it would be beneficial for us yeah, to Yeah, head be as far above water feet, as possible, so of course. Just develop. Yeah. Um, so back to the mm-hmm. cat on Red Dwarf then. So the idea here is that, again, if we're having a look at selective pressures, it was the selective pressures of being in a environment that is designed for humans would have helped that process along mm. of the cat developing a humanid form. So, you know, everything, all the human tools, yeah. like bedding, everything was designed, the entire layout of everything was designed for people that were stood on two feet and were, you know, five, six feet tall. So you can see why to adapt. That's kind of what the cat ended up evolving into. Yeah, and it's it's basically a form of speciation. And this happens when a group of animals become separated from their founding population. And in this case, the cats were trapped on a spaceship for three million years. So they're completely separated from all other cats. And and this environment, you know, all these environmental pressures working on them, you know, if they were going to eat and survive, they needed to be able to use human tools, basically. So for an example of this in nature, snow leopards have evolved. Uh, They're actually now adapted to live at really low temperatures and in really high altitudes. And again, that's because they've become so different, so distant from their founding population. They've basically become a different species. So so that's cats and how cat evolved. Let's nip back to back to holograms, I think, before we finish. Um, During the research, um, we were obviously looking at lots of different bits and pieces and we came across an interview with Professor Brian Cox and he was talking about holograms and he was saying that we might all be holograms living in a holographic universe. And apparently this links back to the science of black holes. So we thought we needed to have a look into this. Well, the thing about a black hole Its main distinguishing feature is that it's black. And the thing about space, the colour of space, you know, your basic space colour is black. So how are you supposed to see them? (laughs) Nice. I see what you did there. (laughs) So, So a black hole gets larger when energy or matter falls into it. So far, so expected. I'm with you here. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. So apparently it's the surface area which grows in direct proportion to what goes in instead of the volume. So mm-hmm. most objects will increase in volume with a smaller increase in their surface area. Yeah, but in this instance, the black hole's surface area increases more than the volume does, which doesn't, it's, it just doesn't compute, does it? Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and basically it's like the information is stuck to the surface of the black hole. So instead of going into the black hole, it's almost like it's stuck to the surface. So basically you've got a 3D black hole in a 3D universe, but it's represented by a 2D surface. And that is a hologram. Because if you think about what's on a credit card, you've got an image of a 3D object, which is seen as 3D when you look at it, but is actually on a 2D surface. So that suggests 
it's something to do with so holograms. maybe we are all just living as a hologram I mean, that mm. stunned silence there from me was things <laughs> clicking into place, but also at the same time, my brain exploding. <laughs> yes, I do. yeah, it's just one of those uh. weird physics theories. Um, so that's as far as we got with that one. We thought we, we wouldn't we'll, go We'll leave it there, won't we? We'll leave it there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Give us evolutionary so, biology over physics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got goldfish shoals nibbling at my toes, so we must be getting to the end of the show. <laughs> Well, smoke me a kipper and I'll be back for breakfast. I won't. I mean, I'll be back next episode. (laughs) But right, okay, I can't even let this one lie. Um, Okay. You wrote me those quotes. Yeah. What? (laughs) Smoke me a kipper and I'll be back for breakfast. Oh, this is brilliant um, because what they like to do in the show is they like to have flip characters in alternate dimensions to the characters that you see. So uh, look out for Dwayne Dibley. I'm just going to say that when you okay. uh, when you're watching the episodes because he's a favourite character. He's a flip flip character for Cat. Right. Um, but this is this is a quote from Ace. Now um, the theory is that um, at any particular instance, with any particular choice that you make, that different dimensions will appear from that choice. So if you know you choose to go one way versus you choose to go another way, that would form two different dimensions. So the idea is that some point in Rimmer's past, he was told that he might have to stay back a year. And one one character stayed back a year and became the rimmer, um, the rimmer that is Ace that creates that quote. And one version of Rimmer didn't stay back a year and becomes the rimmer who you see in the program. Right. Um, and Ace is really cool. He um, flies uh, spacecraft. He's become a pilot, and everybody absolutely adores him. And he's brilliant. Um, and of course, that's the flip, completely flip side opposite of Rimmer. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he says that character just before he goes, he says that line just before he goes out to do anything, you know, smoke me a kipper. I'll be back for breakfast. <laughs> <clears throat> so that was obviously a, a quote from the show. But how many other Red Dwarf quotes did you spot? See, this was as much a game for me as it was the listeners. <laughs> trying to spot some of these. So Smokehead, got that one. Uh, smoke me a kipper I'll be back for breakfast of course as we've just said and then the one immediately mm. before that goldfish shoals nibbling at my toes that mm. was in the music at the end you said yes that's in the end of the show yes so listen out to the the lyrics in the end of the show mm. yep I missed that so I'll have to watch that again um the thing about a black hole I'm not going to read that whole thing again and I, I sincerely hope that everyone got that that was a quote and not just me <laughs> thinking that oh black holes are black so you can't see them in the universe black um, that was very funny Felis Sapiens Everybody's Dead Dave which I get yeah. because that's in episode one <laughs> repeatedly um, Howdy Doodly Do mm-hmm. love this one given that God is infinite and that the universe is also infinite would you like a toasted tea cake? yes please and thank you Mm -hmm. (laughs) i have an iq of six thousand, the same iq as six (laughs) thousand pe teachers brilliant um Mm. alphabet head a bit Mm -hmm. of a bit of slang there for rimmer couldn't outwit a tea bag i enjoy that actually that's a good that's a good one that one carries we can still use that today yeah i think so yeah so that was a good list well done for getting a lot of your favorite quotes there into the show Mm. yeah so for, for more from Small Screen Science, don't forget to listen back to our two other seasons. So if you really enjoyed this, do have a listen back to our other shows. Yes, and you can keep up to date with what we're up to and enjoy a little bit of extra bonus content over on Instagram at Small Screen SciPod, Twitter at Small Screen Sci and Facebook small screen sigh and if you liked jake you can actually get more from him on our patreon can't you so Mm, you can support the show for just a few quid a month on patreon which kind of helps us out with the running costs and allows us to get 
loads of really cool guests to bring you in our episodes um and we pop in a little bit of uh, like a bonus bundle every month don't we yeah. some outtakes yeah. or you and i having a catch-up and a bit of a giggle and generally some extra brilliant bits from our guests and we spoke to jake for so long he was yeah, so wonderful he was brilliant and yeah. if you couldn't tell from his interview earlier he explains <laughs> things in such an amazingly accessible way that yeah we're going to share more of uh, more more bits from him on our patreon yeah um, and obviously, don't forget to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so you get all our new episodes and leave us a review, please, because it really helps us to reach more listeners. So please review us. Thank you. Five stars so would we'll be great. And we'll see five you. Five star, yeah. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see you see next you week next for week. A, an explosive end of season finale. Yes. <laughs> right. Bye. Bye.